0: The late boxer uh, Joseph Barrow was born in Lafayette, Alabama in 1914. He would be known by the name Joe Lewis for short. His opponents would fear him and know him by his nickname, the Brown Bomber. He'd amassed a professional record of 66 and 3 with 52 knockouts. He really came to fame in a fight in June 18, 1941 in front of 55,000 spectators, in which he took on a man named Billy Kahn, who was the then light heavyweight champion of the world. It's in this fight that Kahn decided that he did not need to bulk up for the fight. Word eventually traveled around, and he answered a further question that he's going to take a strategy of a hit and run boxing approach. Word came to Joe Lewis of this, and, and he gave the famous quote you've probably heard before. He can run, but he can't hide. He can run, but he can't hide. Now, 12 rounds into the fight, Khan was actually winning the fight pretty decisively. But he continued to get closer and closer to Joe Lewis uh, against the instruction of his corner. And with two seconds left in the 13th round, Joe Lewis's statement, you can run, but you cannot hide, came true. He was knocked out cold. We see in Moses' life, as we left off last week in verse 15, that his sin found him out. And he decided to do exactly what we see in Joe Lewis's quote. He ran, but as we know in our text, he could not hide. He could not hide from God's calling, and nor could he hide from the consequences of his sin. In our text this morning, as we assess this and aim to apply it and grasp it, the best that we can, and ask the Spirit of God to discern our hearts and help us to walk it out in our lives. There's an understanding we see in Moses' life that he cannot outrun the call of God on his life. Running does not fix the groaning of Israel either. So in our own lives, we ask the Lord to give us clarity and help us to believe this exact reality that, Lord, help us to understand that we can run, but we cannot hide from the consequences of our sin and nor can this foil your great plans that you have in our lives, and nor does our running ever heal or fix the groaning that we often run from. So this is the big idea this morning, a very simple statement. Running from the consequences of our sin, it it will not foil God's plan, nor will it fix our problems. So let's unpack this in in two portions together. First, we'll understand in verses 16 through 19 that, that Moses ran from his problems, but he could not outrun God's calling in his life. Moses outran God's... Are the consequences, and his running did some good, didn't it? So we remember as Moses ran from Egypt, he ran because Pharaoh wanted to kill him. The king wanted to kill him. So when we hear the word king, you can think Pharaoh. When you hear Pharaoh, you can think king is talking about the same individual. Immediately when he hears the news that Moses, this prince of Egypt, had killed this Egyptian who was beating this Hebrew servant, Moses, as we know, and we read last week, he, he strikes a fatal blow and he aims to cover up his body after looking to the left and looking to the right. His sin finds him out. The Israelites will not follow him. They reject his leadership as he seeks to intervene a second time. It's unsuccessful. This leads to panic and he realizes when Pharaoh finds out he's going to aim to desire to kill him. And so that's what leads us now into the land of Midian. We, we, we finish the last verse. He's sitting beside a well. And the scene unfolds in this way. So I want to ask a question first. Who are the Midianites? Their name came, and you can write down this reference. We won't read it, but Genesis 25. Uh, They are descendants of a a son of Abraham. Uh, Abraham, after Sarah dies, uh, he marries Keturah and has this son, his fourth son, with his second wife. And these people, uh, we have good reason to believe that they have many of the teachings of Abraham. They seem to be a rather honorable people. But for our argument and our understanding of this text today to make a little more sense, where is Midian located, we should ask? And the answer is about 200 miles east of Egypt. That means he was so fearful of what was about to befall him from the grasp of Pharaoh, this mighty superpower, this mighty world power, that he ran 200 miles to get out of his grasp. Consider that. Likewise, in our own life, we probably should never minimize how far we might run. Now, in Psalm 23, in that series, we saw that good shepherds desire to do what? To lead their sheep where? Beside still waters. So what does a shepherd do when there are no streams, when there are no rivers, there are no still waters? Well, they understand where the natural still waters are. They go to the wells the places of the wells. And so the problem, though, of going to a well to draw water for your sheep is that supply and demand are higher oftentimes than supply. I know we can't relate to that with energy issues in Texas. I'm not saying anything. No, pointing any fingers here. But the problem of going to the well is that all the shepherds know of this well, and all the shepherds in the region depend upon this well. And that's where Moses just happens to flee to, this well that he finds, 200 miles east of Egypt. Moses has a problem. He's a deliverer that's now outside of the grasp of the people that he longs to deliver. But he can't seem to keep his mouth shut when he sees people being wronged. Right away, we note in this account that you can take the deliverer away from his people, but you cannot take the heart of a deliverer away from him can you? And said another way, we could say you can take the cook out of the kitchen, but you can't take the heart of the kitchen out of the cook. A longing to provide, a longing to nurture and to care for. And that's what Moses has. So he finds himself seated here beside the well. He's leaning against it. And now the third occasion happens and he speaks up. He sees injustice taking place. We're told of this man, Ruel, that he has seven daughters. And and Moses, in telling us that he has seven daughters in this book, tells us how many sons does he have? Zero. So he has seven daughters that are having to shepherd the sheep. The seven daughters that are going and traveling to do the most essential work, which is to give the sheep, the flock, his very inheritance and his very livelihood, he's got to get them water. And so you can imagine the scene, Moses is reclined here against the well, and other shepherds and their flocks are coming with them to be able to do the work of drawing up and drawing out the water and and feeding, and and, and in this way, watering their flocks so that they have necessary sustenance to go back. And by Ruel's response, and by the way, when we hear that word, you can keep in your mind Jethro. Jethro, it's the same person, it's referring to the same individual, Jethro. Many scholars believe that is his deep, deep East Texas name. Jethro, been told. And so when you hear that, keep in mind Jethro. And you can write down, if you want, Exodus 18. We'll see Jethro makes another appearance in which he hears and he comes and sees after Moses will ultimately lead the people from the waters and lead the Hebrew people out. Jethro will come and he will give him some incredibly godly wisdom and instruction. It's an incredible chapter. So when we read about Jethro there, remember Ruel here. It's the same person, the same father-in-law. Ruel's response when the daughters come home with the shepherd is what? He's amazed that they've come home so quickly, which tells us as good readers, at the very least, it was normal for it to take longer. It was normal. So the best case scenario means that either the seven daughters would take his flock and bring them to be watered and either have to wait at the back of the line or other people would come and perhaps men would cut them. Uh, But it ultimately took much longer than it took on this occasion. Moses is sitting there and the women come with the sheep. Who knows how long they travel? But they come and the ladies are met by the other shepherds who have already arrived with their own flocks. And the ladies are not told to get to the back of the line, the ladies are told Leave. Leave. And Moses, who has all the reasons in the world, he's, the only reason he's at this well is because he can't mind his own business, right? He can't mind his own business when he saw an Egyptian abusing a, a Hebrew servant, and he interjects, and he strikes a fatal blow. The second time he intervenes is two Hebrews that are arguing and fighting back and forth. He intervenes, and then they shame him, and they mock him, and in fear, He leaves. But now after a 200-mile trip reclining at this well, once again the deliverer that the Lord is raising up for Israel cannot help but try to deliver people from a hard situation. So what does the text say that he does? But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Three great components that Moses does, isn't it? Now the other shepherds, it appears, have no problem telling the ladies to hit the road. But Moses... They don't want a piece of Moses. He's got this Joe Lewis power, perhaps, about him. They're fearful of him. And so enough to the point where the ladies get to the front of the line. But he doesn't simply stand up for the women. Do you see what he did? He drew the water for them. He doesn't just see something and say something. He does the work to care for them. Not only does he do the hard labor to water their sheep for them, but he desires no recognition for it. That's true biblical, beautiful masculinity. That's a beautiful component. They see a problem, they stand up and are willing to put their life on the line for it. And then they're willing to do the work to try to make it right and then desire no recognition or fame for it. Beautiful are Moses' reactions. Similar is he to Miriam, his older sister. Courage must run in this family. Remember, Miriam was courageous enough when she stayed back in the weeds and watched as Pharaoh's daughter would come along. She would intervene and say, Can I help you find somebody to nurse that baby? The courage of his older sister, and Moses has it too. He can't help it. Now, this is interesting because we'll see Moses in the coming chapters struggle in a great way to trust the Lord. He's fearful to be in the front. He's fearful. He has some kind of speech impediment. He's fearful to be in the front, and yet the heart of a deliverer is still there, even though his physical capacities are limited in some way, that often blind him of the heart that the Lord has nurtured and given to him. This is significant for us for a number of reasons. Do you remember what Pharaoh's daughter named Moses? She sees him there and draws him out of the water. What a fitting name. She didn't know, but God, in his sovereignty and goodness, knew that 40 years later, what would happen? The Lord would use a fearful Moses to draw out water from a well and water and take care of these seven ladies. 40 years after that, God would use Moses to lead Israel out of captivity a name even greater than she could have perceived. This is God's kindness to us. Do you notice their testimony that they give? Look at chapter 2, verse 19. You don't want to miss this. Notice their testimony to their father. He's wondering, how did you get back here so quickly? How did this take place? And she says, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. How do they understand Moses? He is an Egyptian. That's how they perceive him. He's still in the garb. Moses has fled the culture that he's been trained up in, and he's also fled his genealogical people. What we're going to notice later on when Jethro sees him, Jethro will not call him an Egyptian. Jethro will recognize him for who he is, and he'll recognize God's blessing on his life, and he'll give blessing to, and, and praise to Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for now, our purpose is, as we see in the text, Moses sends the ladies away after protecting them and providing for them and serving them, desiring no praise. They leave. And Ruel is struck by how they got back here. And look at the testimony that they give. Look how short the testimony is. It's concise, but it's a beautiful testimony that reminds us of many of the testimonies in the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these Gospel accounts of Jesus Christ his ministry, and his identity, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God in flesh who has come for us. Fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, laid his life down on the cross. He fulfilled the full law of Moses. He fulfilled all the prophecies. He fulfilled all the righteous demands, and he laid his life down as a make-right sacrifice on the cross. To all who believe upon Christ, they find a perfect hope and a perfect Savior. He defeated death and rose again. He is making all things new, as we hear in the story of Rob a few moments ago. And many of those gospel accounts, what do we hear? We hear very simple, concise testimonies. Let me give you an example of one. In Matthew chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. Do you remember? A scene that happens again in a well. A woman is at the well, drawing it in the heat of the day. Jesus meets her there, and he offers her living water. She's so struck by this man who knows everything she's ever done that she goes back into the city and she gives this sentence, or at least recorded as, about a sentence testimony. She leaves the jar and she goes back in. To Matthew and John four twenty nine, I should say, and says, "Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? What's the account of the daughters of Moses?" An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. A simple account of the grace of God in one's life is more powerful than we'll ever grasp. You and me, we can wrestle often. If you're a believer in Christ, we can wrestle with speaking about Jesus, and we can think we're inadequate or we're disqualified or there's no way God could possibly use us. The picture of what he's using isn't us, it's God's grace and work of a deliverer in our lives. A simple, a clear and honest testimony of the grace of God. And what's Ruel's response to this? Let me see him! He can't hope, he can't wait, but desire to go and to meet this Egyptian who delivered and protected his daughters and and blessed them and took care of them in their situation? What's the results of the town people that hear of the testimony in John 4 of this deliverer, this one who may be the Christ? They leave the city walls coming to hear him for themselves. Don't you believe that God is so great and gracious and so powerful that he, the one who breathed life from Adam from the dirt, can take one who's dead in sin that is one of your friends or one of our family members or a neighbor or a coworker, or somewhere along the way through our life and bring them to life from death as he's done with us, if we will but speak of the grace of God and how he's impacted our life. May we never underestimate the power of a simple, clear testimony of God's grace in our lives. This is our saving testimony of when we came to faith in Christ. We understood the God's grace and received it by repenting and placing our trust upon Christ. But also as believers, how is God's grace working in your life? If you're married and you've been walking with the Lord, how has the Lord been sanctifying, growing your marriage in Christ's likeness? How is He refining your life? Share that with others. Invite others into your home so they can see it and say, there's something different about you. And it's not you, but it's Christ in you, your hope of glory. It's the foundation of grace and God's Word that you're aiming to build your life upon. That's the good testimony that we have. And so may we be like these seven daughters, bold enough to be able to speak. May we be like the Samaritan woman, bold enough to speak. And not underestimate what God can do in our life. It doesn't mean we get up and preach, but it means if you imagine every doorknob and every conversation and every person, it's just prayerfully testing the doorknob. Is it unlocked? Has the Spirit unlocked this door and is working and on the other side? If we will but open up and speak of Christ, the good news the Lord has for those people and that person. Do you believe God still works in people's lives? you believe anybody that's alive is too far gone for the grace of God? May we repent of that fearful thoughts that come into my life on a daily basis as well. He's worthy of our testimony. Don't believe by fleeing that you are disqualified from the Lord working in and through your life we cannot outrun God's calling and commissioning to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ may we never forget that and this is one of the gifts of what the Lord's Supper is we'll observe in just a little while reminds us of it's by grace we're welcomed to the table it's by the blood of Christ we've entered into the new covenant by faith in the son it's redemption and hope that we have in him and commissioned to share of this grace of the goodness that we've received, not by our works, but by Christ's. Isn't that good news? I'm so excited to see, and I truly believe the Lord is continuing and going to do great things in the lives of many in our community. That was one of the components that we heard from the testimony a moment ago. How could the Lord work through even COVID? I truly believe God is working of a sense of hunger in people's lives that they would not have before COVID happened. I think there is a desire and a longing to engage in spiritual conversations that many did not have before that. And this. I believe many have a desire and a willingness to connect or to engage with somebody that they did not have before. May we never underestimate what the Lord can do through a simple, clear, meaningful testimony of the grace of the God who sustains us. Amen? So let's continue on as we look at the final portion, 20 through 25 of our verses for this morning. Now Moses ran, and the good news is that he could not outrun God's calling upon his life. The the training as a deliverer the Lord was bringing to him. The timing didn't match up in how he hoped. He couldn't outrun God's calling and equipping But on the other side, lest we think, well, in that case, I might as well just keep running from the consequences of my life because I can't outrun how the Lord's going to use me and use the giftings that He's given to me. No. Verse 20 and 25 remind us that Moses ran from his people, but this could not fix Israel's groaning. The same story is repeated from chapter 1. The people are being mistreated and abused in a multitude of ways. Egypt has not ceased being fearful. If anything, the fear of the Israelites who are multiplying, being fruitful and multiplying, is only making things worse and worse. Their groaning does not cease. Moses runs from his problems and runs from his people. And though it keeps the immediate problem of happening, Pharaoh does not kill him, which is a good thing. But the groaning of the heart of his people he longs to deliver is not reconciled. The Lord works a life for Moses, a good life. He goes on, we're told here, and he marries one of Reuben's daughters, Ruel's daughters, he marries. He goes and has a family, and he'll spend forty years here. He'll live a great life. He'll have sons. The Lord will bless him with a family. And yet, the Lord is not done with them. The groaning of Israel has not ceased. We can run from our problems and the people in our life, but that does not mean it will fix the groaning. We can't quit on God's calling for our life. If you're a believer in Christ, you have no greater joy than to walk in the way and the will of God, do we? Every one of us, we could spend the rest of the day today with just coming up and sharing of a time that we ran from God's will in our lives and the misery that we had doing so. He was a college student. Uh, he came to Christ actually as an eighth grade boy. was able to disciple him for many years. He went off to college, and actually in our town, so he we went like across the street to college. But he went, and I soon got ghosted by him. Maybe you have that experience where somebody just kind of disappears. They suddenly cannot respond to your texts. They suddenly don't respond to your calls. They suddenly will go down a different aisle at the grocery store. I got ghosted by him, and I, I knew what he was doing. He was living the college experience and completely cut me out of his life for about two years. And about two years later, he was a maybe second semester sophomore or so, he showed up in my office out of the blue one day. And he came in and we add what everybody has. You have the awkward, random five minutes of conversation. you got to have pleasantries as though you've seen each other, and, but you haven't. And after those conversations, he just said very honestly, I am miserable. That's it. I am miserable. And we both knew what he was talking about. He had a girlfriend and he was partaking of all the things that often come with that in college life. He was a part of a fraternity and had all the sense of what the world says is true brotherhood. He had all these things, but he was entirely miserable. Because though he was walking the adventure of the way of the world, he was not walking the adventure of being and making disciples of Jesus Christ for God's glory. And he was miserable. A sheep is never at peace in the mud. Few are more miserable than when they're walking against the will of God for their life. As we discern by His Word and His people help us to keep that at the forefront. Now Moses is not embracing sin as that young man was in my story. But he is still burdened as a deliverer. And though he delivered those seven daughters he still has a calling and a longing to be with his people. He's still burdened by their groaning. And the text makes very clear for us of what the situation is. He goes on, if you look in verse 21, And Moses was content to dwell with the man. He was content to be there. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zephora, And she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. And what does Gershom's name mean? I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The very name of his son is a reminder that he's not where he belongs. He's not doing what God's called him and equipped him with a heart to do. What about you? Just very, in a blunt way, what about you? What are the areas that the Spirit of God is nudging you this morning? Has God called you to missions? Has God called you to have a conversation with that person that you know is on your heart and mind? Have you slowed down in praying for someone that you know the Lord desires you to be interceding for? I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. What a name. Not only does Moses flee from his problems, and yet the problems aren't fixed. But the man that was the problem for why he left, the man that wanted to kill him, look at the news that we have in verse 23. Good news! Maybe this will fix his problem. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The king of Egypt, this king, wanted Moses dead twice. I mean, if you have somebody that wants to kill you once, that's not good. But this guy wanted to kill him twice. At his birth, he tried to kill him, kill all the Hebrew boys. And now he wanted to kill him when he heard of what he did. But Moses gives us the news in Exodus in this text that that man has died. So the thought being, maybe what? Maybe now he can go back. What happens Does even the change of leadership solve the problem? Does fleeing solve the problem? No. Do you know who's going to need to solve the problem? And the answer is not Moses, because Moses can't solve this problem. Only Yahweh can solve the problem of his people. It's so easy to read the Exodus accounts and to think, look, Moses is the hero. Moses will solve the problem. But Moses gives us incredible evidence here in this next chapter that he is inadequate for the task. He can't do it. And you know what the Lord says? You're totally right. You cannot do this, but I'm with you. I'll give you the words to speak. And he'll say, I don't want to speak them. And the Lord is patient. And he says, I gave you a brother, Aaron. He'll be happy to do it. And he'll wrestle consistently. I don't want to do this. And he reminds them the Lord is with them. They're the Lord's people. The next chapter will make that clear. Who will deliver His people? The Lord will deliver His people. And so make no mistake, believer in Christ, the Lord will use others in your life to minister the Word of God to you and to love you and to serve you and to hold you accountable and to speak into your life. But it's the Lord working through them by the Holy Spirit who indwells them as He does every believer. It's the Lord ministering to us. And so on both sides of the coin, we have to say, Lord, how can you use us with the giftings and the calling you've given us to minister to your people, to be a sharper disciple-making arrow in this world as you call us and you've numbered our days? But on the second thought, let us never lose the perspective of the truth that the law comes by Moses, as John 1 tells us, but grace and truth come through Jesus. The Lord is working and He loves you and He cares for you. And we see that through the ministering presence of His people. This is God's goodness in our lives. During those days, many, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And the cry for rescue, good news, from slavery came up to God. And as we heard in, in Scott, our elders' prayer a moment ago, verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and God Remembered his covenant with Abraham that he cut, with Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's do these together Participation Trophy Awards, right here. Verse 24. I want you to share the verbs of what the Lord does here for his people. And verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and God His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob, and God, the people of Israel, and God, how does that minister to your life this morning? The groanings that in your life that are too deep for words. God sees. God hears. God knows. God remembers. You say, but who am I? Look what I've done. And you're reminded that you are hidden in the new covenant made by Christ's blood. And you rest in who Christ is and his finished work. And you set your sights on being and making disciples. Moses' running could not solve Israel's problems. A change in Pharaoh's and Egypt's leadership could not solve their problems. You could take a lot of applications to our present context, can you not? We can flee a world on fire or we can make a choice. Listen. I'm landing in the plane. We can make a choice and say look at the world that's on fire. Or we can double down on the gospel message. We can have any more even more people into our homes. We can pray even more consistently. We can pray for courage like Miriam and like Moses to go take a walk across the aisle and to speak to someone and engage with someone. And to trust that the Holy Spirit, He who indwells us, can also work upon their life. And So I want them in my life. They're worth it. It's worth it. The awkward, anxious moments are worth it always. And trust that the Lord will use His people to minister to His Word and advance His kingdom As he's given us each a numbered set of days. So let's walk in them joyfully. Let's live the adventure that the Lord gives us. The world can't touch it, the world cannot touch his kingdom. There's no way of the world that can can match the message and the hope that we have in Christ. So let's testify concisely, clearly, and joyfully the adventure that the Lord has anointed each of us to walk out in our lives. That's good news. How kind is our God, isn't he? How kind is our God? Now, this will lead to what for Moses? This will lead to Moses' commissioning and direct calling we'll see in the next chapter. Because the Lord hears the groaning of Israel, it will lead to Moses' commissioning. And so, God, forgive us when we, our testimony stops at when we came to Christ in our lives. The urgency that we should have to realize is that the Lord deploys us in the world. He's deployed us each uniquely here in East Texas area. and we support missionaries all around the world, but right here, He's appointed us to interact with people on a regular basis, and He uses us and commissions us to meet groaning in people's lives. Will we listen? Will we go? Will we share? As we consider our next steps this morning, I want to ask you a very simple, clear first next step. What am I going to say no to or not yet to beginning this month? When we think about as a church family, we're called to be making disciples of Jesus Christ and we talk about being devoted to the Word. We believe these are four components that are essential to our health as believers. It's not an exhaustive list. Every believer needs to be devoted to a group of people, a group of believers, a small group of believers that are centered around God's Word, walking it out and accountability and encouragement. And so if if your schedule is too full to, to have a couple believers in your life centered around the Word, I would encourage you to ask yourself this question, what can I say no to or not yet to so that I have time to gather around the Word with the local people of God? Corporate worship, if your life is too busy for corporate worship, I presume it's not because here we are, right? But as our life gets busy and we enter different seasons, we want to be able to say, you know what? Hey, what do I need to say no to or not yet to? To prioritize the gathering together of God's people, to give them a corporate praise offering because He is the consumer of our worship. Service and living a life of service and being confident to share the gospel with others. If I'm too busy to see people, to share the gospel with people, and to invite them into my life, I'm I'm too busy. I need to say no to something or not yet to something. Now, hey, let me be honest with you. Some of you, that might be, you need to say no to some things that you serve out of the context of our local church. If you're too busy to to practice family, if you're too busy to see your neighbors and invite them into your life and and spend time with them and pursue people, sometimes you, you have to say no to even some service opportunities if you're involved in too many components. So... Question one, what am I going to say no to and not yet to beginning this month? Moses had a lot on his plate and he left, but he was, had a heart enough to see the context of those seven daughters. Number two, would you start two conversations this week? I want to challenge you to start two conversations. One with someone who's connected to a local church. It could be ours. And just share a very simple testimony of a time you ran from a problem to try to fix it rather than running to God. It shouldn't be too hard to think of something. If you don't know of an answer and you have kids, just ask your kids. They'll probably be able to tell you what a good answer for you is. Have, ask a spouse or ask a friend, and they'll be able to inform you of a time you tried to run away from your problem rather than run to God with your problem. Moses hasn't done that yet. And the second question I'd encourage you to have is somebody that, at the very least, I'm finding in East Texas, it's, it's hard sometimes to say, do you know Christ or do you not know Christ? But it's a much easier question to ask because so many have a, at least a church background at a very young age, I'm experiencing. But it's easy to be able to ask are they involved and engaged in a local church. It's a lot easier to be able to give oh yeah no no they're not. Have that same conversation with somebody that doesn't yet involved in a local church body. And then third, the Lord's Supper is a, a beautiful picture of how the Lord hears our groaning and perfectly meets our needs. Now as Romans said, Pastor Rome at the beginning of service, the Lord's Supper is a gift for local believers in Christ. We partake together remembering the new covenant by which we've been brought into by His blood. This is a gift that the Lord gives the local church. And so if you're a believer in Christ, we invite you to partake of this with us. In the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that as Adam, we all ran from God, but God found us. He fulfilled all the demands of righteousness and has brought us life from death. We rest in Him. His yoke indeed is easy and His burden is light. Perhaps you've come this morning and you found yourself stuck in sin. Confess that to the Lord and be reminded of what has made you worthy to be at His table. It's by grace through faith in Christ's work that you're acceptable before God. And so rest in the forgiveness you have in Him. And, and secondly, perhaps you've come so busy and so flustered and you, your heart is just cloaked in pride this morning. Let the Lord's Supper be a reminder to you of truly how you have been made acceptable before God. Also in the Lord's Supper, we see the community element. Moses is pierced by Israel's groaning. And in the Lord's Supper, we partake of this as a local congregation, as local congregations have been doing for centuries and are doing today all around the world. And so there's a community element as you take a moment to look around this at your church family that you're committed to being and making disciples with. And so we rejoice in the Lord's forgiveness for us. I want to read Colossians 3, 12-17 as this reminder to, to not run or to suppress our sin, but to confess it in the Lord, to be reminded that you're clothed in the mercy of Christ's righteousness. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 3, 12-17. As you hold the elements, he says to the local church in Colossae, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, listen, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, a reminder of reconciliation, the Lord works in the Lord's Supper. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. A thanksgiving meal that we partake of together as a church body. So as you would open the bread component. Paul, in recounting how the Lord took the Passover, Jesus, and reinstituted this into this gift, this ordinance, this command to the local church to, to partake of and how to now remember this meal as often as they do so. He writes to church in Corinth and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Scriptures remind us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if you're not a believer and you're among us this morning and you're observing, watching this take place, we believe that we have been covered by the blood of Christ. His sinless account has been reconciled to God on our behalf. That our sin was placed upon His body on the tree. And it's in Christ that we have hope and true forgiveness and joy and peace. We don't earn this, do we? We've received this by grace in Christ. In verse 25, in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, and remember it to me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? before we stand and enjoy a song together before the Lord. Oh Lord, we stand on the promise that indeed in the Lord's Supper, in these words that we read from Paul, in the words we hear from Christ, that we do so until you, Lord Jesus, come. We do believe you will come and descend just as you ascended bodily and in glory And Lord, we give you glory knowing that though our bodies are impacted by sickness and death, that our bodies will be raised again to newness of life. That we will be with you forever. That you indeed one day will wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more groaning. For you have made all things new. We give you glory and we pray, Lord, as we sing this song that it would be a blessing to you. Lord, we pray for those in our room today that don't know you, those watching online, God, who don't know you as king, that your spirit who draws near upon their life, that they would respond by faith in your son. We thank you for the joy of what it is to be a people made new and to walk out this commission that you give our lives. Thank you, Lord, for not being done with us yet. We give you glory in the name of Jesus and all God's people said together. Amen. You stand with me, church family.